You plus God equals y'all. Come south for a silent retreat at Ignatius House and enjoy 20 acres of natural forest on the river's edge. Ignatius House offers a tranquil setting for prayer and spiritual direction, all conveniently close to the city of Atlanta. To learn more, visit ignatiushouse.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Really psyched for this week's show. Feel like I'm going back to school. I know. Yeah. Except we can drink during class (laughs) this time, which is way better. (laughs) I know. You're a theology major. I'm a religious study major. I can say for myself... I learned a lot that I have forgotten. So it's so good to have kind of these nerdy recaps with our interview guests. <laughs> and we're talking to someone with a PhD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is Scott Morangello, who is an expert in St. Irenaeus, who Pope Francis declared a doctor of the church on January 21st. Yeah. So, I, you know, doctors of the church is just this term I, I know generally means is someone important to the uh, Catholic church and figured, you know, okay. Another there's only 37, and so another one was named in the lifetime of this show. Figured we should probably hone in on the subject, figure out exactly what's happening. Uh, but we needed to go all the way back to the second century to do it because that's when uh, Irenaeus was writing and being bishop. And luckily, we found a really engaging guest to talk to us about that. So stick around for that. Yes, and then we also have Signs of the Times, where we talk about the sex abuse report coming out of the Archdiocese of Munich, where Pope Benedict served as bishop for four years, as well as a decision by Gonzaga to revoke season tickets from John Stockton, one of their most famous basketball alums. Yeah, and finally, and as one friend speaks to another, we're going to talk about the role of literature in our faith lives, so stick around. But first, what do we have on tap this week? So <laughs> it was actually uh, Scott's birthday when we talked to him on Wednesday, and he's he's in Kentucky and suggested we have some Woodford Reserve. Yeah, I think I thought this was a really good choice because, you know, bourbon country, it's French influence like uh, uh, Irenaeus, right? Like yeah. Bishop of Lyon. Um, but it's really cold in New York, and we did not want to go outside to buy more alcohol. So uh, instead of Woodford, we've got Bullet Bourbon, which we had on hand left over from the staff Christmas party back uh, in December. So cheers to uh, to Scott, our guest, and to Irenaeus, newly found doctor. But before we get to all of that, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. So with our interview this week, I I once again realized how little I actually know about the history of 
our faith, right? I've, which feels crazy. I've, and I've always wanted to go deeper into it because I feel like it gives so much perspective on what we're talking about on the show, like the current problems and, and debates that we're always, you know, discussing and analyzing. I know there's such a temptation to think about what we're going through right now. All the divisions in the church is is something new, but <laughs> you take a, a peek into history and realize that's not the case. Yeah. So I, I decided I'm going all in on the history of Christianity. And I'm doing it with the help of Wondrium. Uh, Wondrium has mind-blowing premium encyclopedic content on virtually any topic you can imagine. Science, history, music, language, travel, health, and religion. And so that's where I, you know, dove in this week. This week, I was diving into the history of Christianity from the disciples to the dawn of the Reformation, which is taught by Luke Timothy Johnson, who is, you know, if not the most premier, one of the most premier scholars on the history of Christianity uh, alive today. Yeah, that is the great thing about Wondrium. They bring you uh, the greatest teachers, professors, experts who will inspire you and remind you why, you know, learning is fun, whatever age you are. And they do it through engaging videos and audio learning experience and interactive how-to guides and documentaries. Speaking of documentaries, my dad, I got my dad a, a gift subscription to Wondrium for, for Christmas. And he said on Martin Luther King Day, he found an amazing three-hour uh, documentary on Martin Luther King, a filmed record, Montgomery to Memphis, that he just loved. He said it, would, it gave him, you know, raw film from some that he had seen and some that he hadn't before. Yeah. So there's that course and so many others. And we want you to sign up for One Dream today. Be like us. Be like Ashley's dad. And good news, One Dream's offering our listeners a special free 22-day trial membership to celebrate the new year. You're not going to regret this. But to get this offer, you need to visit OneDream.com slash Jesuitical. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And get your learning on today. And now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sip through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So first story is a pretty serious one. A report commissioned by the Archdiocese of Munich, uh, but was conducted independently by a German law firm, sort of looked over the church's handling of sexual abuse over the past 70 years. And it found that um, there were over 497 victims and 235 abusers. Uh, and it focused in particular on one of the highest ranking officials in the church today, uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict. Right. So Pope Benedict was formerly Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, and he headed the Munich Archdiocese from 1977 to 1982 before heading over to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So it's a 1,900-page report, and 200 of those pages focused on former Pope Benedict. But it found four cases where uh, it seemed like he could have done more to prevent abusive priests from continuing in ministry. Yeah, I, the, the cases were that there were priests who had committed criminal offenses but were transferred and allowed to continue pastoral care elsewhere. A couple interesting things about this story. Um, Pope Benedict cooperated with this investigation. He submitted 82 pages of written evidence. Um, this was written you know, without consultation of the rest of the Vatican, it seems. right. He's living in a monastery at the Vatican with the help of aides that are not really part of the normal Vatican structure of right. things. And, and at 94 years old and in frail health, I, don't, I think it's safe to say Pope Benedict himself did not write these 82 pages. You know, he was probably being interviewed by uh, his aides and and legal counsel. Yeah, so it's hard to say, you know, to what extent the ninety four year old man in weak health, you know, could have could have cooperated. But to the extent that he did, that's how the law firm was able to 
come to some of these conclusions. And then this Wednesday, the official newspaper of the Vatican, L'Osservatore Romano, published an editorial that seemed to go on the defensive for Pope Benedict. Right. So it, it did say the report was a important contribution to, you know, the ongoing search for truth and justice in the sex abuse crisis in the church. But it said findings like this are only going to be helpful if they, quote, are not reduced to the search for easy scapegoats and summary judgments, which seems to point to, you know, using Pope Benedict as a scapegoat. Yeah, this struck me as a much more defensive posture from the church. Before that came out, I I had seen, to some extent, a lot of cooperation from particularly Benedict's camp. You know, those are the facts that we know right now. Um, And inside the Vatican this week, our our colleagues, they're going to get into this more. It is a developing story, but there's a couple of points we wanted to bring out. In some sense, this isn't new, right? This is another country. We've seen this in France. We've seen this in certain states in the United States, in Ireland, Australia, right? It's um, really coming, at least making an attempt to come clean about, you know, how this happened, how the sexual abuse crisis happened in the church. But what I, there's a couple things that are different here, particularly, you know, the involvement of Pope Benedict, like the highest ranking possible official in the church. Yeah. So listeners of the show probably remember back in 2018 when the Pennsylvania grand jury report came out. This was a bombshell report came out in August of 2018 that detailed abuse in, in a few dioceses in Pennsylvania. And that was a report that, you know, it was not commissioned by any church officials. It was pursued by the attorneys general in Pennsylvania. And so, you know, it provided (laughs) a one-sided case without, in that report, the church responding. And so as a result, when we did hear from church officials, like the most high-ranking official accused in the report, Cardinal Wuerl of D.C., he kind of came at it in like a damage control mode, right? Yes, very, very, he, you know, he had this website called like Defending His Record about all the things he did, which is a little bit what this like Vatican editorial reminded me of. But it basically was just like, look, this is a smear and I've got to protect my reputation at all costs, which is, of course, the, the, you know, one of the original sins of the sexual abuse crisis is we've just continued prioritizing our reputation as a church over justice and the safety of victims. Yeah, well, I do think it's fair to say that Pope Benedict's contribution to the overall report was not it wasn't undefensive. It was it was his attempt to kind of correct the re- record in ways that they thought the law firm that was investigating may have been uh, missing some details or giving the wrong spin. But I think having both of those sides in one report actually is is helpful in let, letting people see the full context. Right, because I was you know thinking about this and it basically I, I was not surprised or shocked at all. And you would have thought that maybe like former Pope implicated in sexual abuse report would have been a more stunning headline a couple of years ago. And so I was asking myself, you know, wh- you know, why, why isn't that surprising? And part of this is like in the seventies and eighties, this is, this, this was just sort of like standard practice for the church was to, particularly if you were in charge of priests, you yeah, you were sort of moving them around. And this was not just in the church, but in other parts of society too. And that's not to excuse any or to defend the church, but it, it's at least pushed me to reflect on how I think about the church or its leaders, right? They're not infallible. They're not perfect. It is, it's a community of not just saints. It's a community of saints and sinners. And that includes popes. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> you mentioned saints. Uh, we we have a former pope and current saint in Saint John Paul II, who af- after his death and after his canonization, some things came out about his dealing with the sex abuse crisis that that were were damning in some respects. And so I, you know, I think it is a sign of progress that we're having this conversation now about Pope Benedict. It doesn't mean that he's not holy. It doesn't mean that one day he might not be a saint. But I think having this fuller picture while he's alive is actually really healthy. Yeah. The church needs to come clean about what it did and did not do during the sexual abuse crisis. Well, I mean, this is part of it, right? You have this is the the church paid for this report, right? So this is an initiative taken up by the church, um, but let, you know, done by outside investigators. The Pope is cooperating. Pope Benedict is cooperating. It's going to be painful, but this is part of that healing process. um, And I think coming to terms with that is, is a healthy thing, even if it's a painful thing. What's our next story, Ashley? Our next story comes from a Jesuit university. Uh, Gonzaga, in the state of Washington, has spurned one of its most famous alumni over his refusal to comply with the school's mask mandate at basketball games. Yes. So John Stockton, who all-time NBA great, uh, probably aside from Bill Russell, the best Jesuit-educated basketball player of all time. So royalty at Gonzaga, right? Big supporter of the school, big supporter of the athletics program, uh, his jerseys hanging from the rafters. School officials basically called him and said, like, hey, man, you're a public figure. Um, people notice you. Could you? We need you to wear a mask at the games, which everyone else is doing, or we're going to revoke your season tickets. And the result of that conversation was the revocation of his season tickets, which I thought was a pretty, I don't know, at least principled move by the university. And so because and because it's a Jesuit university, we wanted to talk about it here on the show. Yeah. So it, this was not out of character for John Stockton, apparently. Uh, I have to admit, I didn't know much about him before this, but he has been uh, pretty vocal about his feelings during the COVID-19 pandemic. He's been critical of the vaccine and spread some misinformation about it on various uh, podcasts and in a documentary. And he has also been a vocal opponent of vaccine mandates. This sort of happened over the same time period as uh, after the Packers lost, everyone on Twitter was, you know, resoundly dunking on Rodgers. So many Aaron Rodgers jokes. Aaron Rodgers is quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, who is unvaccinated and sort of very loud and outspoken about it and about not caring what people think. And so people, I think, took a lot of of joy in seeing him lose. Was your reaction to the Rodgers thing like a little bit of schadenfreude or? No, it really wasn't. And I, I, I don't know. I am I think that schadenfreude and taking joy and, you know, there's the whole genre of terrible tweets and articles now where someone who's spoken out against vaccine gets ill or even dies and people are celebrating it. And I know that's not what this is, but it's I see it contributing to the same like toxic discourse around how we're dealing with this pandemic. And I really just don't want to be a part of it. So like, yes, Stockton, if the rules at Gonzaga are wear a mask, wear a mask. But I'm also like, I don't know, I've been to NBA games where everyone is required to show vaccine uh, proof and I'm there without a mask. So I like, like their rules are different, different places. And I just hate this like pile on mentality of whenever someone in the other camp like steps over some line, there's this desire to, to dunk on them. It's different with like famous people and more powerful people a little bit, I think, because I'm sympathetic to your point. But with someone like 
like athletes, like John Stockton or Aaron Rodgers, I, they tend to think of themselves a little bit like priests do sometimes in that they're this separate privileged class where the normal rules don't apply to them because they haven't applied to them in the past, right? Like someone told me no one makes it to the NFL, no one makes it to the NBA, and I showed all those people wrong and I did it. So I am special. Um, and so there's this like clericalist mentality in a lot of professional athletes. And so when you see like the quote unquote normal rules actually applying to them, there's this sense of like order is restored or justice is restored, which I don't think is quite schadenfreude. It's it's more just like, you know, good on Gonzaga because this is a, a risky thing because I'm sure there's lots of like alumni and donor money and just like power and prestige attached to a decision like this. And it had to be like, I don't know, reasonably difficult to to, you know, come down on this like that. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I don't want to come off as like I'm defending John Stockton because he has said some truly um, uh, yeah, I don't think crazy things about yeah, COVID and uh, said he's not going to follow, you know, the Pope's advice on this. So. Oh, yeah, that was he was just he asked if like the Pope made any the Pope's comments about vaccine, getting vaccinated being a moral obligation. Did that influence him at all? And he was just like, no. And I disappointed that people in charge are not putting our best interests at heart. So. Let that say what you will about John Stockton, but uh, good on Gonzaga for for sticking by its principles. I'm still rooting against you if you come up against Loyola in the Final Four, though. Joining us from Lexington, Kentucky, is Scott Morangello. Scott is an associate professor in the Catholic Studies Department at DePaul University in Chicago, where he focuses on the history of biblical exegesis and religion and literature. Welcome to Jesuitical, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, big week. You, we said it was a big week for uh, Irenaeus guys, but as you mentioned, it's always a big week for always for, for Saint Irenaeus. Twenty four seven. For those of us who are uh, unfamiliar with his work, could you give us like a, a, a quick one hundred one bio? Who is he? Like, what time period? What's he famous for? So Irenaeus of Lyon lived roughly one twenty. Perhaps he was born as late as one forty to roughly uh, 200. Okay. He was born in what's now Turkey, in a, at the time was called Asia Minor, a, a town called Smyrna. He spent some time in Rome. And then sometime after 177, he was in what's now Lyon, France. Um, 177 is an important date because there was a massacre, imperial massacre of Christians in 177. And the Christian community in Lyon and the nearby town Vienne was, you know, destroyed, basically. Only a few people left. And a lot of Irenaeus's writings are, I would argue, and others have argued, are written against the backdrop of those massacres. Then there was another massacre of Christians in 203. It's not clear that Irenaeus died then. It's likely possible that he died earlier. We don't have accounts of him as a martyr until much later. Chances are that if he had been martyred, the community would have recognized it and kind of kept that alive kind of from the get-go. But it's clear that he's like existing in this context of the early church where Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. like like there are, there is martyrdom happening a lot and we're sure. like roughly like 120 years after the death of Christ. Yeah, or... so so not that far removed. So can you talk about what his connection was uh, to like the apostles? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Irenaeus talks in, uh, so he wrote, writes this big work called the Against the Heresies. 
And at one it's point- It's very in, big. I, I, I tried to, I like looked up the possibility of reading it for this interview and then I was <laughs> like, uh, probably not going to happen by, by recording time. <laughs> I, had a, I had a teacher in grad school who once was asked if he read a book and he said, read it. Hell, I haven't even taught it yet. <laughs> so he writes this book. Uh, and in the book, he mentions that he uh, was a student or studied with, or, you know, kind of depending on how you translate it, um, this guy Polycarp. Uh, and Polycarp, we know a decent amount about. Uh, and Polycarp was himself a disciple of St. John, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John fame. And so Irenaeus has this very close connection, uh, just kind of two generations away from Jesus himself. And can you talk about the importance of that? Because we're, we're talking about a time where there was no, like, the Bible or, mm -hmm. like, what we would, I don't know, what much of what we would consider to be like the church. And so mm -hmm. I assume that having that personal connection gave him a degree of authority that maybe other people didn't have. One of the things exactly how you kind of laid it out was why would you trust somebody? Like why would, why would somebody be more important than somebody else? Why would this person's way of understanding the Bible be more authoritative or, or worthy than somebody else's? And Irenaeus is not the only, but an early attestation of someone who said, you know what, it really matters that what I'm teaching you comes from Jesus himself, right? Um, there's this kind of the very beginning, and now that I'm just thinking about this, the very beginning of the first letter of St. John has basically, it's like, we, we saw with our eyes and we touched with our hands and we heard with our ears. And St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about like what I'm handing down to you, what was handed down to me. The, the personal connection was really important. And if you didn't have a personal connection, and, and St. Paul faced this among the apostles, you know, and actually the apostles, they're kind of like, well, dude, we knew Jesus. You didn't. Like, who are you? Right? And Paul had to talk about his own authority because he says that Jesus actually talked to him. Right? So one of the ways he makes an argument and this would have been familiar to people of his time, that I have a kind of like ethical connection because I know the people we're talking about. Mm. And what's the uh, situation of the of these early Christian communities as they relate to wider society? Are they, you know, you mentioned martyrdom and massacres. Are they, are, are they persecuted, tolerated, somewhere in between that? Usually they were tolerated like so long as they didn't make any much much noise like nobody really cared nobody really minds that you listen to nickelback until you like start listening to nickelback like <laughs> in a group of people and then it's like stop that um so in the same way like nobody you know the christian there, there weren't very many of them at least at first um and they seemed to keep to themselves and so it wasn't that big a deal that you know the romans just kind of ignored them but Every now and again, if the Romans were looking for a scapegoat, the Christians were a handy scapegoat. We see that, of course, today in horrible ways. Not not necessarily for Christians, but you know what I mean. So they weren't a huge kind of political force at all, but they were convenient scapegoats every now and again when people were looking to blame people for something else. All right. So you mentioned his major work uh, against the heresies. So can we dig into that a little bit? What are What are these heresies that he is worried about at this point? He writes this five-volume work, which is kind of crazy in and of itself. And it seems as though there were Christian teachers who were teaching things that today might sound kind of weird to us, but 
uh, we've all probably had thoughts of in some way, shape, or form. So these people, these heretics, are um, usually lumped together as Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. It's not a term scholars use much anymore. It's a term I use to just like tell, show that I studied theology <laughs> in school. I don't necessarily really know what it means all the time, but <laughs> it's sort of my way to think. Yeah, exactly. Like people, you know, it, it's one of those like, you know, it's like I read Don DeLillo and I can like use the word <laughs> Gnostic. Like, yes, I went to college. Yeah. Like, I have a liberal arts degree. Um, <laughs> I wear New Balance sneakers. You know, like all of these things, like they yes. all kind of fit together. So let me let me take one person who's not considered a Gnostic, but who Irenaeus considers a heretic, this guy Marcion. And Marcion was famous or infamous for saying that the God that's depicted in the Old Testament and the God of Jesus Christ, two totally different guys. And Marcion thought, you know what, we don't need the Old Testament anymore, right? Forget it. And like, that's wrong, right? But I do think that you know, there have been times when probably lots of us have kind of felt like that. Like, oh, you know, God seems kind of angry in the Old Testament, where he seems kind of like kumbaya-ish in the New Testament, and I like that more and stuff, right? So that's one kind of false teaching or incorrect teaching that he's arguing against. Another is that it seems that there were teachers who believed that there were kind of like three classes of people, kind of earthly people who were really just kind of horrible, like they weren't very good. There were soul-ish people and the soul-ish people were like good but they didn't really get it right and then there were like spiritual people and the spiritual people were the ones jesus was really talking to and really talking about and these spiritual people had the true knowledge that's where the word gnostic comes from they had like true knowledge and they have like the kind of secret dakota ring that can explain different parts of the gospels that seem a little weird and they know that they're not really meant for this world and instead god doesn't transform the world jesus doesn't transform the world but jesus delivers you out of the world like again i i don't think that's what jesus is about right but i think there intuitively that makes sense to people it's like we all go through that phase when we're like 16 and we discover the smiths and the cure and we're like ah oh, the world sucks like i don't want to be part of this like i need to be delivered from this etc Irenaeus is really worried about that. He he is really worried about the idea that you can have like different classes of Christians. He is really worried about the idea that you can think that your body, because it's part of the material world, is bad. Like Irenaeus, like no, 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 your body is good. It's important. He is really worried about the idea that people could think the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are somehow different, and that Jesus announces a different God. So those are the heresies that he is concerned about, and and the word itself. Heresy just comes from a Greek word meaning to choose. So people like picking and choosing, and Irenaeus doesn't like that. Now, you mentioned that you know he's obviously got this sort of apostolic lineage that he can mm-hmm. lean on, but he's not, from what I understand, based on the size of this book, he's not purely uh, appealing to authority. He's also or, or the authority of you know who he is, right? So mm-hmm. how is he counteracting, maybe just like focusing in on Gnosticism for, for sure, people? Sure. Um, sure, sure. What's his main argument against that? Because it's it sort of is seems fundamental to even the way we understand theology and God today. So I would argue, and I have argued, in fact, I wrote a book about this, (laughs) that really what Irenaeus is trying to do, he's not really so much concerned about like the Gnostics per se, right? What instead he's concerned about is for all Christians to understand themselves in light of the great story of God's creation and salvation, 
right? And so really, and I think this is super interesting. I think this is one of his great contributions to the history of Christian thought. Today, you know, if you go to the bookstore um, and you go to like the religion section and there are like, you know, there's probably one copy of the Bible next to like 35 copies of The Secret or something. Um, <laughs> so you you pick up the Bible, right? And it begins with the book of Genesis and it ends with the book of Revelation. Well, Irenaeus was the first person to talk about all of those writings together as scripture, right? So that's really important. And one of his other great contributions, and this is related, is what's commonly known as the rule of faith, almost at the exa- very beginning of the text. He lays out, it almost sounds like the Nicene Creed, like the faith is like one God, and then he talks about God creating, and he talks about Jesus, and Jesus' salvation, he talks about the spirit, etc., and the church. And the idea there is that, listen, the Bible is really long. It's super, it's even longer than the universe of Cyrasis. It's really hard to understand, right? But if you keep in mind this little summary that is the rule of faith, that is like for us today, the Nicene Creed. That doesn't mean you're going to say everything right about the Bible, but it is going to make sure you don't say anything wrong about the Bible, right? And so I, I think that Christianity is, is unimaginable without Irenaeus, because for us today, so much of Christianity is understanding ourselves in light of the Bible. Irenaeus is like really big on the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. One of the things he's really taught me is that like I'm part of the same story that like not only the early Christians were, not only Jesus was, but also like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and that the whole history of salvation and creation and salvation is something that like all people are involved in today. It's kind of remarkable because it seems so systematic and comprehensive of just like a way of thinking that seem, it's like looking at it today, you're like, yeah, that's, that's this is how we look at things. But, mm-hmm. you know, the Council of Nicaea is not until, what, fourth century, right? And so, mm-hmm. like, yep. this is 150 years before we, we have the Bible, we have the creed, and you've got this guy sort of, like, laying it out right there for us. I was thinking along those lines that, you know, it seems inevitable now that it would, you know, that it ends up where it does. But Mm -hmm. obviously he, if he felt like he needed to write this ginormous opus against Mm -hmm. heresies, like it was contested and maybe it didn't necessarily have to end the way it did. So, or maybe it does because the whole Holy Spirit is Mm -hmm, (laughs) at work. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) But so, you know, like how, how close the call was it between like the Gnostics and, and Irenaeus? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think one that's like tricky to answer because this like Chiefs Bills game this weekend, right? It's like, if you like, um, I don't have a TV, but I was like watching it like on ESPN.com and you can like, they have this like, um, Chances that each team will win, and he like keeps going back and forth, mm-hmm. and back and forth, and back and forth. And then, like afterwards, you're like, "Oh, obviously Mahomes was going to win." Like, duh. <laughs> but you can't, like, you can't know that beforehand. It's, but you can know that, like, without Mahomes, the Chiefs ab- lose. <laughs> ab- no, that's exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. that's exactly it. That's exactly it. But like, we don't know like the relative populations of like these so-called Orthodox Christians versus Gnostic Christians, and like, was it just like a demographics game or whatever? We do know, I, I like to, you know, it's like without Mahomes, the Chiefs wouldn't have won. Without Irenaeus, um, you know, could the Spirit have done you some other vessel? I'm sure, right? But the way it is, is the way it is. Yeah. And he's like, inter- one of the things I'm excited about with him being declared a doctor of the church is that just more people know about him. And 
I, my hope is that he'll be a household name that people will be interested in read his stuff much more than people have been. I was going to say, so I, I think if people have heard one quote from mm-hmm. Irenaeus, it's probably that one, the glory of God is man fully alive. Right. And mm-hmm. So I was, I was Googling that before, before sure. for you to get, get what the context was that it has. And there's mm-hmm. actually a second part of it that says, but the life of man is the vision of God. And mm-hmm. I don't know. When I hear that quote often used today, it's like, oh, God just wants you to be happy. But are we are we getting it wrong? <laughs> yeah. So that that begin the the the, uh, the glory of God is the human person or human being or whatever man fully alive, right? And that sounds like you know, like get your matcha and your Lululemon pants and just like be you, right? Um, but you're right. That second part is like. It, essential, namely the life of man is the vision of God. I think this uh, visual metaphor is like super important for Irenaeus. And it's a metaphor we use a lot too. If you're talking to somebody and you understand what the person is saying, you'll often say, I see, right? You don't actually see anything, but it's it's this metaphor for understanding. Um, My five-year-old once asked me, how do people see things that's in their mind? And I was like... I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> and I think when Irenaeus is talking about the vision of God, what he means, understanding ourselves as a part of God's grand story. Irenaeus uses this term economy, which is in St. Paul as well. This great economy of salvation. And the center piece of the story is your relationship to God in Christ. Uh, and that m- more specifically, uh, the relationship of God in Christ that is love, right? And so uh, in that way, it's not just this kind of like fluffy thing. In fact, it's about love. And because it's about love, it's incredibly demanding and incredibly fulfilling. And I think that, again, he's writing against the backdrop of martyrdom. He's writing against the backdrop of people who so loved God, right? And so loved each other that they refused to deny that love to Roman authorities, right? I mean, that's ultimately what martyrdom is, whether it's like in Central America in the 80s or in Japan in the 16th century or whatever, right? It's about like refusing to deny the love that sustains you. I wonder if we can move a little bit towards what is a doctor of the church? Uh, Why is it important for Catholics? Yeah, so there are 37 and they're a kind of a varied bunch. Essentially, what a doctor of the church is, is a person whose writings and whose life we can look to as guides for understanding our lives as Christians, right? It doesn't mean that everything they say is perfect. It doesn't mean even that they don't necessarily disagree with each other on certain points, but they're kind of sure guides in much the same way that, like, you know, the saints are for us sure guides. Um, that doesn't mean that the saints any given saint lived a perfect life. And of course, doctor is just the Latin word for teacher. So there are people who, you know, teach us the faith. Seems like an honorary degree type situation where if you (laughs) give like a speech, you get a degree from the university. (laughs) Something like that, you know. Um, The the interesting, the funny thing with Irenaeus though, is that to to continue the honorary degree analogy, people are like, what took everybody so long? Like, why is this, you know? Well, I think part of it was that I think, and, and today it's still the case, like, so Irenaeus' feast day is June 28th, and the priest can wear red, right? Because Irenaeus mm-hmm. is, like, seen as a martyr. Now, whether or not he was actually martyred, is, is it's not completely certain, right? But part of the idea, like, you don't need to name Irenaeus a doctor of the church because he's already a martyr, and that's, like, higher, 
Like you actually did the dissertation if you're like a martyr, <laughs> whereas like just a doctor of the church. Yeah. Okay. You like showed up, give a speech, whatever, you know, <laughs> I want to pull out one, one thing you said, like these doctors of the church, they might disagree or contradict each other in, in some ways. So I don't know, like, so maybe someone like Augustine and Irenaeus, I assume if you read them, you would come out with kind of different ideas of what human nature is and what salvation looks like. So what is a Catholic supposed to do with that? Irenaeus views original sin, let me put it that way, we use that kind of familiar language, of Adam and Eve as a kind of childish mistake. Like, they didn't know enough. Like, they just made, like, a dumb mistake. Whereas Augustine is pretty hard on children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I once had a friend, like, um, I used to teach at Villanova. So I teach at DePaul now. And I used to teach at Villanova, and everybody at Villanova teaches, takes, uh, reads Augustine's Confessions. So the, the kids, the students, would be kind of upset about that aspect of Augustine. And then I have a very good friend of mine who taught in the program as well. We were there at the same time. <laughs> she has six kids. And she was like, no, Augustine's right. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Kids, kids yeah, are and, you know, like Kids are like... <laughs> and, and selfish. Yeah, ex- exactly. And exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so like so that would be an example of like um, Irenaeus and Augustine would disagree. Now, are there ways to um, make that disagreement somehow complementary? Probably. Now, that's a very unifying answer, um, which is a perfect segue into the, the next thing I mm-hmm. want to talk about, which is that, you know, Francis named him the Doctor of mm-hmm. Unity. Is that because of his East-West, right? So he's someone who's born in the Eastern Church and like... Uh, move to the West. Irenaeus is is certainly a figure where um, all, let's say, creedal Christians um, really look to him and see the kind of grammar that he laid out uh, in his writing as just essential to Christian discourse. Right? I think that's a great message. So it is a time of great division among among Christians, even and within the Catholic Church. So. Um, I don't know if if Irenaeus was writing today. Uh, well, one, who would he be calling a heretic, and what would he be doing to unite people against the Jesuits? <laughs> that would be the title of his work, I think. Yeah, you know, like I think that I, I, I appreciate how you frame the question. The sorts of problems we have today aren't so different from the sorts of problems we've had before, right? And so, even this kind of essential topic—I mean, you're right to bring it up. It's like, well, it's there in like the New Testament. Like Christians have been like disagreeing since like the Acts of the Apostles, since Paul started the Galatians. And one of the things he's just done for me is that I had never, like in a, in a kind of important way, I think, like Irenaeus like just got me into the Bible more, which I think like any uh, great theologian should do. And he got me, kind of helped me realize the importance of like the Christian community even more than I did, and about the sacraments even more than I did. And I think that um, those <clears throat> markers of the Christian community, those are what are essential, right? And I think that Irenaeus uh, would probably be concerned if there were people or movements or ideas or whatever that somehow divided us from those things. Well, I was just trying to get you to call out today's heretics, but that was a much more Christian answer. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, I, I, yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've already said bad things about Nickelback. I could also say other bad things about, like, you know, <laughs> pop music or some other pop stars that I don't like, but I'm, you know, I'm going to refrain. I, I, I'm hopeful because, as you said, if this makes 
Irenaeus a, a household name among Catholics, or at least the people that are into doctors of the church. If that's at least like, you know, us having the same household names is something that's going to move us toward toward unity. I think that's right. I think that's right. And I mean, so you mentioned um, the Adversus Iresis, which is, as you noted, super long. So it's so the Adversus Iresis is in five volumes. And at the end of the second volume, he mentions that he's going to write a small little book to kind of like next, right? Um, and the scholars aren't completely sure, but he uh, it might well have been this book he wrote that's called uh, either it's either called the demonstration of the apostolic preaching or the proof of the apostolic preaching, and it's super short. It's just like um, it's only a hundred paragraphs long. For a long time, for centuries, it was nobody. We, we knew it, it, it. He had written it, but we didn't know what it said. Um, and in the early 20th century, it was found in an Armenian monastery. So, like in Armenia, right? So, like only the Kardashians can read it. Um, <laughs> but uh, now, you know, it's translated, and it's this beautiful little book. It's almost like a kind of Cliff Notes version of the Bible. So, you'd recommend that as like a starting point for Absolutely. someone getting into it? Yeah, 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 yeah. If you need help, like falling asleep, you could like read stuff I've written. But um, really, <laughs> what you want to do is like this small little volume on the apostolic preachings. Again, it kind of orients you towards the scriptures and kind of orients you towards the rule of faith. And you're like, oh, okay. Now, before uh, we let you go and kind of moving on from Irenaeus, I, I'm just curious. Um, you have the great privilege of trying to like teach theology to like. 18 to 22 year olds. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm just, yeah. I'm, yeah just, my favorite. <laughs> I'm just curious. What's that? What's that like? Are you worried about how, how do uh, young people typically like come into a classroom ready to take a class? They probably have to, right? I'm imagining it's part of the mm-hmm. core curriculum at theology or, or at DePaul. So for a lot of the students, not certainly not all, but like a decent chunk, uh, Catholicism is like somewhere in the back of their minds from the back of their stories or whatever. And they pro- truthfully, um, they probably think about it as like some kind of weird thing that their grandma does, right? The fact of the matter is that uh, they don't know anything about it, right? Um <laughs> It's very Augustinian of you. It's it's like, you know, like sometimes you just got to call a spade a spade and like they don't know anything about it. Um, And they, for understandable reasons, have kind of written it off and think it's kind of goofy or stupid or whatever. So how do you open them up? How do you open them up to if it's something A, they think they know and they Mm -hmm. think it's stupid? Right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, That's a tall order. It is. What's your like strategy? There's a lot of parents listening right now who are like, this is why I get paid the big bucks. One of the things I say from the get-go is that part of like the reason for a core curriculum or a liberal arts education or whatever is to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. And this is provocative, and I, I know this. Like in a deep way, I've never taught a student who wasn't Christian. When I say that, I mean that um, the Christian worldview haunts um, so many people in so many different ways. Um and like when they read about Jesus, like when they actually read the scripture, like they read about Jesus, they're like, whoa, I think when you actually present um, the vision of God, right, to go back to um, the earlier question, um, it's incredibly compelling. And I think part of the problem is that we don't make it compelling. We make it boring. I think a lot of times 18 to 22 year olds, and I'm sure this goes down to 14 and up to 30 year olds, right? have never been taught this stuff by people that they really felt cared about them. The, the vision of God, 
um, as recounted in the scriptures, the um, importance of love, the importance of authority, not in like a kind of authoritarian way, but authority in the like, this is a person who cares about you, a person you can trust, and a person who is like helping, wants to help you explore things that are worth exploring, right? Um, I think all of those are just really essential to teaching. They're especially essential to teaching at um, undergraduates, right? Um, and even more so for teaching undergraduates who don't care, right? Who are like, just like, this is another box to tick or whatever. Um, and it works. I really think it works. Uh, Scott, thanks so much for, for taking us back to school today a little <laughs> bit. Um, but we, we do have one final question for you. Um, sure. Yeah. Oh, yes. We asked all of our guests this. If you yeah. could canonize one person, uh, living or not, Catholic or not, uh, fictional or real, who would it be and why? You're going to get me all sentimental. Is that okay? Yeah. Yes. In high school, right? So I, as I mentioned, I went to this Regis High School in New York City. Um, there was a teacher uh, named uh, John Connolly who uh, went to our high school and then taught there for like 50 plus years. And um, like he taught Phil Cly, he taught Colin Jost, he taught, um, he was classmates with Father Robert Mbelli, who writes for America every now and again. Uh, he was a history teacher, but he taught so many of us what Christian life and practice and what being a kind of Catholic intellectual looks like. So uh, John L. Connolly, Regis, Holy Cross, uh, taught at Regis forever, uh, or a pro nobis. Amen. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we know it's your birthday, so happy oh birthday. Oh my God, that's right. Happy <laughs> birthday. Thanks so much. Yeah. I hope you're doing what you love. Just talking about Irenaeus. <laughs> Seriously, like, you know, I, I talked to my mom earlier. My mom called me today, right? And she's like, I'm doing anything fun today. I was like, well, actually, I'm getting to talk about Irenaeus on the Jesuit-inspired podcast. And my mom was very excited about this. Oh, so, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. I love it. Well, thanks for sharing it yeah. with us. <laughs> Thank you. Take a stand. Move your hand. Jesuitical is supported by the Hank Center at Loyola University, Chicago. On February 17th, Professor Jennifer Newsom-Martin is giving a talk called The Sacrament of the Possible, or Why I Became Catholic. All are welcome. For more information and to register, visit www.luc.edu ccih. If you're enjoying today's podcast, please join Father James Martin and Jamie Marisotis for a discussion on human work, spirituality, and empathy during their virtual live event, Finding Spiritual Meaning in Human Work, on February 14th. Sign up at luminafoundation.org slash events. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. And... I'm up. You're up this, this week. week. So uh, I was listening to a podcast conversation between Andrew Sullivan and uh, his guest, uh, Roosevelt Montas, who wrote this book, Rescuing Socrates, and it's kind of his defense of the humanities. And at one point, Andrew used this phrase, becoming a person by reading books. And it 
the that phrase just really stuck with me and I was reflecting on it like in, in what ways is that true for me? And it it brought me back to high school when I had this one teacher, both my sophomore and senior year of high school, Mr. Gasparovic, who's the one who really made me fall in love with um, especially English literature, but literature more broadly. And when I think back to that time, I there was like the pre-Mr. G times where I think as a person, I was very concerned about you know, what other people thought about me and defining myself against like the expectations of like the cool girls and guys I liked. And he created this world for me in literature where like I started like looking inward and creating that interior space where I could, you know, like just like pay attention to feelings and emotions and like, who am I? <laughs> Which Like carving yeah. out like a uh, space for like an interior life. Yeah. And, and I had never really connected that to my like journey as a person of faith but i i think if i hadn't had that experience first in like this kind of more you know secular public high school setting where i was just like falling in love with with books by jane austen and charlotte bronte that when i you know came to college and was kind of exploring my faith and reading things like saint augustine's confessions i wouldn't i wouldn't have had that practice of of being able to pay attention to those interior movements and what they meant for me as a human being and so it just got me thinking of like why why hadn't I like been able to make that connection before um and I think maybe maybe that's a common experience you know not being able to like seeing those as very separate tracks yeah I I always say that um you know I was not raised super religiously um and so before I had any sense of like morality I got it from uh Harry Potter, I think, which I I, I I like to say was like, you know, very much like self-sacrifice and love of neighbor. And th- those were sort of the lessons I got from that instead of Jesus uh, for the first like 15 years of my life. Um, but I think th- that point about like what work or what experiences did we have uh, that opened us up to the message of God's love, right? Like God, I think it's important because God is working in our lives even before we realize it's happening. Um, and, and I, I think most commonly we're okay to accept that. It's like, oh, the way our family loved us prepared us for the way that God loves us, which is true. But there, are, but there are all kinds of other things that are happening to us that are sort of, uh, you know, building the road that are leading to where we're going now. Yeah. So listeners, uh, maybe one thing to think about this week is what are books or maybe movies or Anything else that you had kind of walled off from what could be considered, you know, acceptably faithful or Catholic? Or like fundamental experiences in your life. Like if you tell yeah. the story of your life and this event comes up or this thing comes up and you don't think of it in a religious context, like why not? Yeah. Because it probably like it's probably like God speaking somehow. Yep. All right. So think about that. Meditate on that. And if if anything really profound comes up, let us know. Uh, you can join us on our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Jesuitical or send us an email at Jesuitical at americanmedia.org. All right. Get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. 
For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.